that in the beginning part of the service, and we've been reading through the book of Psalms, um, and um, as we read through the book of Judges, today there's a lot of scripture being read. Um, there's, this is a big text, but in order for us to understand it, we have to read all of it, and so we'll all be the better for it uh, if, uh, if we hear from God. So, Father, we do pray that as we look through the scriptures again today, that you'd continue to give us wisdom and guidance and direction as to um, what this means in its context, what this means to us as believers, Father, and how this should impact our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him, so he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate both of them. When the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, they, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners. Who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field that evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? 
Where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you, I will care for all your wants only. Do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into the house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, Know my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. May God bless the reading of his word. The, uh, I, I hope by now that you've understood that I've really attempted throughout this series to apply the text of scripture where I know it should be applied. It should be applied to the church, not the culture. Now, it's far easier to apply this to the culture. In fact, it would be very easy right now to preach a rousing sermon and say, this looks exactly like the United States. Look at us. We're doing exactly what is right in our own eyes. Now, I am not a cultural historian, but I think I can say, safely say that the results of America doing what's right in its own eyes contributed to the sexual revolution in the 60s, and now we have the LGBTQ movement, the legalization of homosexual marriage. You can go on a cruise that caters to specifically gays and lesbians. You can go to Disney now during Gay Pride Week. Um, the homosexual and the transgender agenda, we all know, has permeated our culture. 
I mean, two men can adopt a child. Two women can adopt a child. I mean, lesbian women and gay men. And there are adoption agencies attempting to hold their ground and not allow homosexual couples to adopt children. But if they're receiving any kind of government funding or grants, then they have to comply or go out of business. And as a nation, we've been killing babies in the womb for several decades. In many cases, the school systems are no longer teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's, it's pushing a godless agenda and worldview where there's no regard for any truth. And don't get me started about TV and movies and entertainment. Hallmark included. Deb and I were watching a crime show the other night. It's closing scene. Ten-year-old boy told his mom he's bisexual. Ten-year-olds are not sexual. Here's a ten-year-old boy saying to his mom, he may have been nine, bisexual, and she responded to him by saying, and it was a close-up shot, it was really the climax of the, of the entire show, how happy she is for him because he is living his truth. Now there you have it, right? No one's committed to the truth. We're committed to your truth and their truth and my truth, and clearly we're not committed to God's truth. There's no right and wrong. There's no, there's no right, there's no wrong in America. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And if I continued my entire sermon and pointed my finger at the culture, when I finished the sermon, we could all very, very righteously and very, very piously say with the Pharisee, I'm thankful I'm not like other men. I'm so thankful that I'm not like those moral perverts. I'm so thankful that I'm not like those gays and lesbians, and those awful transgender people, even those atheists. No, I go to church, I sing, I pray, and I'm clearly much more better, much better and more acceptable to God. We have to guard against our self-righteous pride. You know, Romans 1 clearly condemns the moral reprobate. But Romans 2 clearly condemns self-righteous, church-going, religious man. And Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But this is not to be preached to the culture. What I want you to understand is that the nations have always done what's right in their own eyes. So where the United States is today should not be a shock to anyone, the nations have always, the, the nations have never lived their lives underneath Christ's authority and then turned from him. The nations have always followed their own rules, done their own thing. All nations do, including America. The book of Judges is not designed to speak into the lives of pagan people as much as designed to speak into the lives of God's covenant people who have turned their back on God and rejected his word, his rule, and his reign. Because the book itself is about a specific people who've been called to serve him, who've been rescued from bondage in Egypt, who were given the covenant of circumcision, who were given the commandments, given the ceremonial law, given the sacrificial law, given the tabernacle, the ark of the covenant. They're given the land. And they even promised before God, that they would be faithful. 
turn back a few pages in your Bible to Joshua 24. This last chapter in the book of Joshua is something you can read for yourself for your homework. But Joshua had, had led the people out of the wilderness into the promised land. The land had been allotted to the 12 tribes, and they're, they're already having a wonderful head start as, as, they're, as they're moving on and taking what God promised was theirs. Joshua is getting ready to die. He gives one final last challenge to the people to be faithful to God. And after his challenge for them to serve God faithfully, the people express their corporate allegiance to God in verse 18. The last sentence reads, Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Then look at verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, You're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. People said to Joshua, no, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. Verse 24, they repeat their allegiance to God again. The people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. Three times the people declare their willful desire to enter into a covenant relationship with God. This is not any nation. It's not part of a nation. This is an entire nation that has proclaimed under the penalty of divine judgment that they will obey and serve the Lord. So these are God's people in a covenant relationship with him. And as far as the timeline goes, they made this declaration right before the book of Judges began. If there's any doubt about these events being directed to God's people, go forward a little bit to, to Judges chapter 20. Judges chapter 20, and just see how the people in the narrative are addressed. Judges chapter 20, verse 2. Right after all we read in chapter 19. And the chiefs of all the people, of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, you see the book is specifically about God's covenant people. So when the people of God do what's right in their own eyes, they have violated everything that they've committed to. They have violated everything they believe. They are no longer doing what they previously believed and committed to. They're no longer obeying. They're living their truth, which is no truth, and that is tragic. And this is why the application of the book of Judges is the church, not America or any nation, because we as believers are in a covenant relationship with God through Christ. He's redeemed us from our slavery to sin. He's brought us from darkness to light. He's brought us from death to life. He's brought us He's bought us with his own blood. People in the church, we, like Israel in Joshua 24, have made professions and confessions of faith. The United States is not. Now, the hard part in all this is, how can this be? How can the church come to the place 
where it looks exactly like the culture. See, that's the key to the passage. That's why my sermon is titled, uh, Becoming a Canaanite. You see, the parallel passage is identical to this situation in a different town with a similar result. Remember back in Genesis 19. Go ahead and turn there. Those of you who are reading through the one-year Bible reading plan with McShane read this last week. I won't take the time to read the entire chapter, but remember that God told Abraham he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. If you recall, two angels appeared as men. They came to the town, and Lot, Abraham's nephew, had them stay with him. The conversation with Lot and the men in the town who wanted to come and rape Lot's male guest is identical to the conversation in Judges 19. Look at verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. That's the identical request that the people in Gibeah had for the men staying with the old man. And the answer was similar. Both Lot and the old man offered their daughters to protect their guests. And the question we have to ask and answer is how can God's covenant people, how can the church come to the place where there's no difference in behavior than the world? How did the church or how does the church become so Canaanized? Why is the church acting like Canaanites? I know someone who was recently at a basketball game between a Christian school and a public school. And he told me that based on that one game, he would never send his kids to that Christian school. Between the fans, the players, and the coaches, he said he would never send his kids to that Christian school, maybe in name only. Afterward, he's talking to a few other men, and one of those gentlemen said he's been to several Christian school basketball games, and he said that the Christian school fans and coaches are always worse than the public school fans and coaches. How has the church such a bad reputation in the world? Now, the hard part we're going to have today in this passage is it goes on literally for two more chapters. The entire narrative continues throughout the end of the book, and it isn't over until there's a civil war, until you have almost a whole tribe annihilated, until another city is destroyed, then it ends with what we would now consider sex trafficking. So we've got two more weeks to finish all of it, so you have to hang in there. But let me just hit the main points, and we'll come back and attempt to apply it. It begins with our familiar phrase in verse 1, there's no king in Israel. And then we're introduced to a Levite. This is a different Levite than the Levite we saw for the last two chapters. Uh, this particular man has a concubine who's been unfaithful and then goes back to her father's house. 
Now, a concubine is usually considered kind of a secondary wife. More than a slave, she's not to be mistreated, and if anyone would violate her or sleep with her or she slept with someone else, it would still be considered adultery. Verse 3, the Levite, the Levite is called her husband. And verse 4, her dad is called father-in-law. So uh, I view this just simply as a marriage between these two called the concubine. After four months, Levi goes after her and speaks to her kindly. He seems interested in restoring the relationship. The father-in-law obviously is glad he's there and treats him to a five-night party of eating and drinking and making merry. He finally leaves and begins his travels with his concubine and his servant. As they're traveling, nightfall comes upon them, it appears. It would have been easier if the three of them would have stayed there in, in Jebus, which is also considered Jerusalem, according to verse 10. But verse 12 tells us the Levite was emphatic. He was not going to stay in a city outside of Israel. He didn't want to stay in a place with foreigners. I think he's communicating here that it would be unsafe. So he kept on to the city of Gibeah, which was an Israelite town in the tribe of Benjamin. They go to the open square, and verse 15 is significant. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Uh, the, the fact that nobody took them in to spend the night showed the city had no hospitality and no concern for strangers. Since they were in the open square of the city, it's obvious that many, many people saw them there, but no one stood up and said, hey, come on, I have a place for you. Hospitality in this culture, in this time period, was just part of the way of life. It would have been unheard of for them to let someone sleep outside, just one more clue that the men and women in this place had no regard for God and his word since there was no concern for the stranger who had come to town. And then we're introduced to this who's called an old man who will help in verse 16 and notice verse 20. The old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkey's feed and they washed their feet and ate and drank. The older man at this point, he, he knows something that we don't know. And that is, if he would have slept in the open square, he would not have been safe. Now, as it turns out, the Levite, his servant, and his concubine are not even safe in the old man's house either. Verse 22. As they're making their hearts merry, behold... The men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. Now, that word beating, it means a hard, pounding knock, pressing. It gives the impression that they would break the door down to get to this man. It shows an unsatiable sexual appetite that is so perverted, they wouldn't even have been satisfied with one another. So they're looking for something new, new experiences with new people. We find it grotesque that, like Lot, 
he would offer his daughters and the man's concubine. On the one hand, it shows the commitment to protect his guests, which is very cultural. On the other, a complete disregard for women, even his own daughter. And then verse 25 is unconscionable. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. The men wouldn't listen. They're going to break down the door. Levi protects himself by seizing his concubine. Notice he made her go out to them. Obviously did not want to be thrown out to these animals. He had to physically grab her and force her out the door. They abused her all night. Not until daybreak, they let her go. Now, it, if you're feeling outraged right now, you're meant to. This, this whole context of this is meant for us to be outraged. And your feelings are going to escalate when you read verse 26. As morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. Those of you and those of us who are parents, you, you know you can't sleep until all your kids are home safely at night, right? Your daughter happened to be out. You clearly would be waiting up for her. Your son as well. You can't sleep. For some reason, your wife even is out late. You're concerned, and you just want to make sure that all your little chickens are in the coop before you go to bed. But, but this guy gives up his wife to a bunch of moral reprobates, knows exactly what they're going to do. She actually arrives on the doorstep in the morning, obviously arrives, uh, arrives alive. He doesn't even know it because he's snoozing. He has a really good night's sleep. He goes to bed, doesn't even wait up to see if she made it home. I mean, callous is just not a strong enough word. And his only comment is, get up, let us be going, and there's no answer. As I said, it's, it's meant for us to be outraged. In my mind's eye, I, I see a guy who, who just woke up and turned on the news and took a shower and made some coffee and had a nice breakfast and no thought whatsoever or consideration for his wife. And then when he finally gets ready to go out and go on his way, it's almost as if seeing her lying there is more of a nuisance. When you find she's dead, she wasn't dead when she came home, but she died on the floor step, on the, on the doorstep there. And I think with her hands on the threshold, it almost communicates that she's reaching for safety. And we are outraged at him. And the outrage at how the men of Gibeah acted toward this defenseless concubine. And, and our outrage continues when we see him actually carve her up into 12 pieces 
and he sends a part of her body to all the 12 tribes of Israel in an attempt to create outrage in the nation over what happened. And it works. Because the text says in verse 30, all, and all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. This kind of grotesque evil they're saying has never happened. So what should be done about it? Well, we have to wait until next week to find out. Because chapter 9, 19 tells us of this horrible incident. And then chapter 20 and 21 give the details of the nation's reaction to it. And we'll get there next week. So a horrible chapter in the word of God. All scripture we looked at this morning in our new members class is God breathed, inspired by God and profitable. So what is this saying for us? How do we apply it? How does it speak to the church? I think with the identical comparison between what happened here and what happened in Sodom, the writer is telling us, God is telling us, God is warning us that it is possible for his people to become exactly like the world. Because it's making a comparison. Now, it's not an exact match. This is not saying that the church is involved in this exact behavior and there's someone somewhere that's going to chop up someone and send, send it by FedEx or whatever. It's not a one-to-one relationship. But it is saying that God's people here in the narrative is the new Sodom. And that's both grieving and frightening. Grieving because it ought not to be. Frightening is because it could happen to us if we are not watchful and we are not vigilant. The minor difference in these two events was that Sodom, in Sodom, the angels rescued Lot and his daughters, and then the angels destroyed the wicked cities. Here, the concubine is not rescued. We'll find out next week that the wicked people will be judged and killed, not by angels, but by their brothers. But in both cases, God's divine judgment fell upon people. In Genesis, God's divine judgment is on the pagan. In Judges, God's divine judgment is on his people. Look, we'll see this next week, but just to give you a glimpse, fast forward to chapter 20, verse 48. Chapter 20, verse 48. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. You see, the evil pagan city Sodom was burned up. And here the town of Benjamin, where God's people are, is burned up as well. Now, remember way back when we started the book of Judges. See, this is how the people of God were to treat the Canaanites. They were to destroy everyone and everything because of their idolatry, because of their immorality, and because of their utter evil. And now the tribe of Benjamin, who are called God's people, has become so much like the culture that they were supposed to destroy that they're being wiped out because of their sin. So Israel is now Canaan. So is it possible 
for those who are the people of God to become so much like the world that there's no difference between them, that you can't tell them apart. Apparently so. Ralph Davis helpfully points this out by simply saying, Israel is the new Sodom. So this is a warning. It's a warning to the church. And we don't have to guess why this happened. We're told three different times here at the end of the book, in those days, there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we've said it multiple times. The king that they need is Jesus. The king that we need is Jesus, who rules and who reigns. No, when he rules and reigns and we submit to him, then nobody does what's right in their own eyes. We do what's right in his eyes. The king sets the rules and his subjects obey him. And the only way for the church to keep from becoming like the world is to first and foremost come to the king and worship the king and love the king. And why wouldn't you? See, we love him because he first loved us. Just like he brought Israel from Egypt, he brought us out of darkness into the light. He brought us from death to life. He brought us from slavery to freedom. And he did this by, by dying for us and suffering for us and going to the cross and rising from the dead. Well, we sang about it earlier. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood beneath a sin debt that we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. And his mercy is more. That's why the chorus says, praise the Lord. His mercy is more. So out of a grateful heart, we submit to our king. We love our king. We give everything to our king because he is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And he commands us by his word. So we desire to obey his commands. Is that your heart's desire this morning? Is that why you're here? Is this what brings you into the company of God's people? We love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul, and all of our mind, and are we growing in that love? See, when we deviate from his rule and his reign and his word, then we do become our own kings. We do become our own laws. We do what's right in our own eyes. And instead of walking in obedience, we make up our own rules as we go. See, the book of Judges from beginning to end shows the horrible effects of what happens when Christian people, when the church tries to rule itself by not submitting to Christ as Lord, not submitting to God's rule, God's reign, and God's word. Now, I'm just going to close with two examples where at least this pastor sees the world and the church have little to no distinction. I'm sure there are multiple more. Maybe you could mention something. We can talk about it over coffee. I'm sure we can add to this. And if any of these fit us, then we need to turn from our sin and cry out to God for mercy, asking him to change us, submitting to King Jesus, confessing our sin because he's faithful and loving to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think first, and I'm not the only one that would say this, is that there's, there's 
literally no difference between believers and unbelievers in the moral realm. Christian cohabitation, living together before you're married as believers, is now a thing. 2019 Pew Research reported that 58% of white evangelicals said cohabitation is acceptable if a couple plans to marry. Views on cohabitation become noticeably less Christian among younger respondents. Now, what seems like the norm, cohabitation has worked its way into a step between dating and marriage. So it's, oh, she's cute, then date, then you have that next step, cohabitation, and then marriage, and that seemingly uh, is acceptable. But did you hear that second phrase? Views on cohabitation become noticeably less Christian with the younger generation. Beloved, we're already like the world. Where, where's the church going to be in 20 or 30 years? Also in the moral realm, the statistics on Christians who view pornography at least monthly is staggering. Some report that 70% of those who claim the name of Christ view pornography monthly and 40% daily. Even secular sociologists are noticing the problem when young people are marinating in pornography. I mean, there's almost no difference in the overall morals of those who call themselves Christians and those who are non-Christians. And I honestly don't think a week goes by where there's not some kind of sexual scandal that's connected to a pastor or a conservative politician who has been publicly vocal about biblical purity but privately living an immoral life. Should grieve our hearts to see the church become more and more and more like Canaan. I wonder if we're totally honest. I really wonder anymore if the church, as a church, do we even believe in biblical purity? I know of Christian married men who watch sensuality and think it's okay to spice things up with it. And maybe some women do too. Do we really believe that any kind of sexual expression or satisfaction is, is, is exclusively reserved for marriage? Do we teach that to our teenagers and young people? I mean, parents, do you hold your kids accountable for the time they're with the opposite sex? Do you ask them questions about their purity? Are they accountable to you for what they view on their phone or their computer. I wonder what would happen if we all had a day where we turned in our phones, turned in our iPads, in our computers, and had a history checkup. Who wants to go first? I mean, the first line of defense is mom and dad. If mom and dad are struggling, the kids will just be completely out to sea. The way back is repentance. The way back is stop doing what's right in our own eyes. The way back is to obey our king. Flee immorality. Be holy as he is holy. Do not let impurity be named among you as is proper among saints. I mean, love him. Follow his rule. Follow his reign. He's our king. 
Secondly, I think the church has become like the world in the political realm. I said a number of times we should vote, use our God-given rights, but at the end of the day, the outcome is the Lord's. I don't think I've ever seen so many believers still in a tizzy over Donald Trump losing the election. And I've never heard so many nasty, hateful comments about our current president and vice president by Christian leaders. It is grieving, and it is so wrong. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2 just for a moment. Remember, at the time of the writing, Nero was emperor. Nero was killing Christians. Nero was a very immoral man. It's a government that Peter and Paul were under in verse 13. Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, we're going to walk through 1 Peter in the weeks ahead, but we'll go into great detail. But for now, just notice a couple things. Be subject to the emperor or the governor and honor the emperor. That alone would stop any believer from speaking ugly about the current president or vice president or anyone else. Because the word honor is the same word used when Paul said to honor your father and mother. We, we would discipline our kids if they spoke dishonorably about their parents. So, so why is it okay if we dishonor our president? Now, I expect this kind of unkind of hateful mocking speech to go on in the unsaved world. We expect it. This is all they have. But, beloved, we're citizens of a better country. We're citizens of an eternal city. This earth is not our home. We're just a passing through, right? Turn, back, turn to Romans 13 for a moment. It's always good to remind us that, that God is the one who removes kings. God is the one who establishes kingdoms. And that all of our authority is ordained by God. Romans 13, I'll just pick it up in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now again, there's more to this than I can say right now, but I just want you to see that there's no authority except from God, which means that in the Old Testament, God put Nebuchadnezzar in office, to bring Judah into captivity. He also told the people of Judah to go with him willingly. God was in charge. Again, if you're reading through your Bible reading plan this year, then you know that it was King Cyrus, who was a complete pagan, king of Persia, who God put it on his heart to send the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. He also put it on King Artaxerxes' heart, another pagan, to allow Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the city. God works in governments. God works in history. He is sovereign over all. 
The psalmist reminds us to put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. See, we need to bow before our king, recalibrate our thinking to align with his word. Stop acting like Canaanites. God is much bigger than whoever is in any office or any ruler over any country in all of history. His purposes and plans are never thwarted by anybody. He's been putting people in power and taking people out of power for thousands of years. He has a plan. He's pretty good at it. And we can trust him. Beloved, it took the nation of Israel quite a while to to descend as far as they were from God. There are denominations and there are religious institutions today that started for all the right reasons, all the right doctrine in place, and two and three hundred years later, they have no Christian witness, no Christian testimony, and are absolutely no different than the culture around us. It's a slow process. But if it's not corrected at various points along the way, then the slide continues. And part of the reason why we continue to emphasize how important it is that we gather together on Sundays is for the Holy Spirit to do the work that he promised would do through the preaching of the word of God to correct us and rebuke us and to, and to realign us and to train us in righteousness so we don't do what's right in our own eyes. Rather, we do what's right in God's eyes. And by his grace, he will give us the strength to do this as we continue to rely on his absolute and perfect faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and righteous and pure. And Father, we are aware that as we gaze into your holiness, we're reminded of our own sin. And Father, we know that because we're sinners and separated from you, that our only hope was Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we are ever so thankful, Father, that your mercy is indeed more. Father, we are in a culture where we are influenced and tempted on every side around us. You can hardly do anything anymore without being bombarded with things that pull us in directions that are not pleasing in your sight. And Father, we know that that influence, uh, eventually, if we don't say no to it, God, we become trapped in it. And as we become trapped in it, uh, it becomes worse and worse, Father, and it honestly doesn't take long for us to be claiming to be Christians and living just like the culture. We do thank you for your discipline, and we do thank you, Father, that those who are your own, that you continue to bring circumstances into their life to draw you back, draw them back to you, and we pray to that end. Lord, I pray that you would raise up men and women here who are, are holy and right and pure, and they're fighting the battles, God, that, of their minds and hearts, and that you indeed would continue to conform us into your image. And Lord, I pray as well that as we continue to wrestle and struggle with uh, such an, a difficult political scene, Lord, that we can rest, that we can trust, that we can hope, 
Lord, we know that we're strangers and aliens, and we know that you have a better country and a better city and an eternal place for us, and how thankful we are for that. Help us to be about the business of doing all we can to represent you in such a way that we're bringing other people into the kingdom with us. Lord, help us, please, Father, um, see this world in such a way that it isn't our home or just a passing through, and that you indeed are King eternal and Lord of all. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Christ's name I pray, amen.